Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Chapman, and if there's one thing I believe, it's that you're capable of making your dreams a reality and that the world needs you to be living out your purpose. One thing I love is to chat with people doing impactful work in hopes that we can all learn something from the conversation. Not to mention, we get to apply all of that wisdom to our own journey. Each week, you will hear just that here at the Radiant Podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Radiant Podcast, and this week I am so excited to have my friend Grant joining me. He has a passion for the millennial generation, and our conversation speaks to my soul because it's pretty much everything I'm about. So I'm so pumped to have him on. Like you've seen, we're mixing it up with bringing some guys on here on the Radiant Podcast. So it's been super fun because I pretty much interview my friends who are doing incredible work and I love what Grant's doing. So I'm super pumped for you guys to meet him and can't wait for you to hear his story and what he's doing in this world. Hey Grant. What's up? I'm so glad to have you on. You are my second ever guy on the Radiant Podcast. So welcome. Who's the first? His name is Justin. His podcast just went live recently. Just ambiguous, Justin. Um, Justin Boggs. You'll have to check him out. (laughs) Justin Boggs. Okay. Yeah, he owns a media company in Nashville. So we do a lot of collaborative work together, but I'm so glad to have you on. No, for sure. Thank you for having me. I would love in true fashion for you to kind of start with how you got started, what you do, what you're doing now, and tell us a little bit about you. Yes. So uh, my name's Grant Skeldon. I'm from Dallas. I love Dallas. I wasn't born here, but I've been here since kindergarten. And really a big part of just my testimony, what raised me, kind of grew up, I guess, around a lot of church culture. But even I'm um, 28 years old now, and I feel like a lot of young people tend to move from city to city and job to job, church to church, relationship to relationship. And a big part of, I think, me forming this whole thing I do called initiative is a love for my city. It's just a love for instead of trying to move to the next big thing, when things aren't going as quick as I want it to or change isn't happening or impact, I decided instead of moving to New York or Portland or Seattle or some cool city, what if I just really committed to my city and all the ups and downs, the good, the bad, the ugly of it. And so that's really formed into a heart for church unity, a heart for the different problems that happen in Dallas. And a a cool thing that I love about it is it formed like a heart to just support anything and everything God's doing through different people and where I could celebrate it instead of compete with it or compare to it. And so what I do now is I, I lead a nonprofit called Initiative that trains young Christians to be local missionaries in the culture, mostly in the arts culture of Dallas, taking Christ into the business culture of Dallas, and then taking Christ into the education system and different parts. Like that's really my heart is I felt like seminaries were training pastors for the church and I wanted to train up missionaries to impact the city. Ooh, I love that. So, and a little bit of background, Grant and I met at a retreat you put together. So can you tell us a little bit about your heart behind even like uniting leaders? I think kind of the tagline was building bridges racially, denominationally, and occupationally, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I think, so I'm Mexican, South African. And why I tell you that is I get put on uh, these different panels all the time on racial reconciliation um, our group is crazy diverse racially. And so what's ha- in light of all the racial tension this uh, last couple of years, uh, I'm always on the panel. Usually they'll have like a black guy on the panel, a white guy on the panel, and that 
all these different ethnicities. Well, with that, I kind of felt like, I mean, there, we were doing so many panels. Like, I, I joke, but I really was doing, like, racial reconciliation panels all the time. There's been a huge uptick on them. And, and in Dallas, there was the police shooting, which even caused more. We got to talk about the tension between white and black. We're just a diverse church, blah, blah, blah. And the why I share that is um, there was just one time when I was like, man, I've been on the same panel with a lot of the same people over and over again, but I don't feel like this is fully going to change society and change the church by them just hearing us talk about it. Like at some point, we all keep talking about how what has caused racial reconciliation in our own lives, therefore in our own churches or organizations, is friendship with people that don't look like us. And that's that's what's got to happen. And long story short-ish is that I kind of prayed, God, what, I don't know, like, what are models that have worked for racial reconciliation and how can I share that? And I'm a big, like, go and see what models work and then try to replicate that, even if it's outside the church. And what I noticed was, um, if you think about it, like, when something is so incredible and there's like a true story made about it, um, they make it into a book or a movie. And it made me think, what are great, incredible, true stories about racial reconciliation that have been made into movies? And I never really thought about this question, but I love movies. And I thought the first one was Remember the Titans. That's what I thought of. The second one I thought of was Glory Road, which is about UTEP basketball team, the first team to start five black players on a basketball team. And then I thought about Race, which would come out around that time, which was about Jesse Owens. And then I thought about 42, which had come out that same year on Jackie Robinson and also Blindside. And so basically I thought about all these sports movies and I was like, man, that's crazy. All these movies are on racial reconciliation, but they're also sports movies. And it made me think like, why, why are they sports movies? Um, And the thing that really hit me was that almost all of those movies, what caused the racial reconciliation was it wasn't like they started out the story saying, I'm trying to create a bridge. What started out is they had shared goals to like compete in a certain field and be the best at it. And they had to work together. A white person and a black person normally uh, had to day and night, night and day, day after day, compete and practice and, and work together. And my favorite is Remember the Titans where they truly like had to live in rooms together and then they come back from camp and they're like best friends and they go in hating each other, but they come back because they love and where at least they want to win and they're passionate about winning more than they're passionate about their differences. And I just found like whenever you put very, very different people in literal rooms together over a day, a couple days, especially if Christ unites them, they're just going to connect. Um, there's something that happens when you go on a mission trip with a whole bunch of strangers and you come back. And the goal of a mission trip is not to become best friends with everyone on the mission trip, but it just does happen. And so I think there's a, I think what God showed me was this, that through shared experiences, shared values, and getting out of your element to a place where you literally live with some people for a good amount of time, it will create unity. And that's where I was like, well, what if I could do this strategically with some of the most diverse, dynamic young Christians from across the nation. And it did. It happened. Like, I hang out with groups from Colorado all the time. The fact that we're connecting, I was with Kobe and uh, Gloria and Monica just the other day. I was with Kate and Chi Chi yesterday. Like, I. So cool. I, we live in different parts of the nation, 
But since we are influencers or have our platform and we get to travel a lot, we get to see each other Quite shockingly all the time. Yeah, I saw Colby last week yeah. and Chelsea. So that's so cool. I mean, your your ability to facilitate and connect is really unmatched. So it's super cool. And, and also you connecting these young leaders for a greater purpose. I think I, I loved one statement you made during the retreat is, you know, in 20 years as our influence expands, you know, we'll have been linking arms for 20 years and we'll say, no, I know that person when something comes up. They're my friend. They're my family. And so I think that kind of flows into, too, your heart with changing the idea or the media impression around millennials. And you've got a book coming out. I would love for you to just tell us about what you've got going on there and what your passion is for millennials. Yeah. So it's crazy because, you know, when I started Initiative, it was to train up young Christians to impact culture and to kind of break the stereotypes that are usually associated with them. However, six months into the program, and it's been very successful in Dallas, but I started getting asked all the time to speak to different pastors and then started started getting asked to speak at events for parents. Then I got asked to speak to a lot of events on business leaders, even lately getting asked to a lot of like political like stuff to say, how do we get Christian young Christians involved in politics? I mean, it just seems like everyone's struggling with that millennial generation. I would almost say like the need is so big that it's created this platform where I get to say like, oh, it's the millennial whisper and it helps translate millennials to other people. But all that to say is the book is a book on millennials, but it's not for millennials. Um, from my experience, I don't know about you, Kelsey, but I feel like whenever people talk about millennials, it's usually crazy negative. It talks about how like we're noncommittal, we're transient, we're sloptivists, we're lazy. It's almost never positive. But another thing I realized is it's almost never millennials that are writing the content on millennials. Yeah. And it's usually older people that are talking about millennials. And so I don't know if there's any other group that we would really think that this is okay. Like I would never go to you you do a lot of stuff. You said I'm the second guy to ever talk in here. <laughs> um, I think it would be crazy if you only interviewed guys to get perspective on girls or like if I did a conference and I only got men to speak on what women want totally. and what women need. Or if I went to a conference done by all white people on how to reach black people. Now, what I will say is men could do some great research on women and try to come up with some conclusions based off the research. White people can do some great research and come to some conclusions off the research. But if there is no black voice or if there's no woman voice or in this conversation, if there is, I can't tell you how many things I go to that's on how to reach millennials and no millennials are even speaking, then I'm like, is that not kind of strange to not have? I mean, it'd be something if it's like, I joke that it's like we talk about millennials, like we talk about whales and studies of whales <laughs> and whales can't talk. So I understand they cannot tell us why they do what they do. But as a millennial, I'm a grown adult legally and I can communicate and I'm just always shocked. I'm not saying millennials only should share. I just feel like I'm shocked by how few millennials get to ever share when the problem is this big. And I really think that's a big, big part of the problem is everyone's talking about millennials except for millennials. And so they're sometimes the right research, but I think the wrong conclusions and definitely the wrong solutions. And so I just am trying to not just, I always say my main prayer over and over again is let this book be far more than a book, but let it be a bridge to create unity among generations. Because the irony is 
what I do think most millennials need is mentorship and discipleship. And so I'm trying to be an advocate to get the older, wiser generations to pour into our generation. I absolutely love that. And and something you kind of mentioned is that a lot of labels are applied to millennials, such as noncommittal, cynical, entitled, slacktivist. And if we think as believers, if we believe that the world was spoken into existence and that words have power, why do we think it's okay to label an entire mm-hmm. generation that this. And I really love that your work is to change the narrative around this and to change the conversation and to be a bridge. So um, how have you seen the value of mentorship impact your life and discipleship? Because I've heard you say there's a difference between mentorship and discipleship. So maybe unpack that as well. So the first question being how how has it impacted my life? I would say that without a doubt, like Grant, without mentorship and discipleship is unbelievably different person with unbelievably less opportunities. Like there is no 20 something millennial with any type of of national impact that I've ever met that has done it all in their own wisdom and own strength. Every single one that I know that's in their 20 somethings. And if they have a national platform in business, education, politics, church, ministry, nonprofit, whatever it is, they, when I ask them, like if they're 23 and they have something huge that they're doing, I'm like, who older has helped you, poured into you, funded you, connected you, spoke life into your gifting? Um, and I've never met one that's just like, oh, no, I did it by myself, me and some young friends. It's always maybe started there, but at some point, someone older and wiser, if not a slew of people, usually the greater their impact, the more older, wiser people poured into them. And I'd say the same thing for me is I got saved when I was 16. The first time I went to this specific church, I was in like the perfect season to want Christ. And two weeks later, I got discipled from being saved. And so for me, I was just very fortunate to have a man named Kevin Batista take me under his wing and literally say that I want to take you under my wing and I want to disciple you. I thought it was just normal. It wasn't until years later when I started getting asked for advice on young people that I realized Oh, most young people never got someone older and wiser in their life to pour into them. And what I would say the difference between discipleship and mentorship is he didn't just mentor me in the sense that he said, come and meet with me. He discipled me in the sense that he said, come and follow me. And so he let me join his life. And I was so hungry that I was uh, not he wasn't just teaching me things. I was like catching it from him by seeing his life and his family and his work life and his church life even his personal life and certain habits he lived for. And so when I was 16, I think in a lot of ways, when I saw Kevin, there was times when I was like, man, I want to be a husband like he is because he does this. Or I want to be a father like him one day because he does this. And I think most young people, because they mostly surround themselves with only young people, their I guess their role models are less developed and the standard is then lowered. Absolutely. So for someone listening who thinks, man, I know you're... Your book is geared towards not millennials, but for a millennial listening, how would they find that? I always tell them it's hard. It is hard. It's like it's probably one of the biggest tensions is how divided we are, not just in the church, just in general. We and it's not I don't want to say it's seasoned. I don't know what to call older people, but people older than myself. <laughs> I, would, I don't want to ever say it's their fault because we're so bad. Like we're our generation so bad at only hanging out with each other. And so we don't know people that could disciple us. And when I talk to the older people that want to disciple, they don't know any young people. And so I would say definitely try to find someone in your church. I think one of the best places is to find someone in your work. 
if possible, because you're consistently around them and oh, there yeah. is an area in which they're trying to grow because they work for that company. So it's almost like the more you can develop them in the workplace, the more it benefits the company. Um, it's encouraged. Uh, it's actually also pretty rare. I do think of the church world, the political world, the parents, um, of all the people, groups that I talk to the most, the ones that seem the most frustrated and cynical towards millennials is the marketplace and the workplace. I do get it because they experience the work ethic, which is so different than than <laughs> generations before. And so I get it. But, I mean, if that's the natural culture for most millennials, then imagine if you were a millennial and you went into a culture that's like, we really, really value you so much so that we're going to pour into you not only to be a, a great worker, but also to be a great husband or wife or a great father or mother, just to be like someone with integrity and gifting. Um, I think I think a lot of young people leave job to job because they don't have any personal relationship like that. But if they did, I would consider if I wanted to go to another job, because would they provide that kind of environment and incentive to stay? I think that's totally, totally valid. So, you know, one thing you say is that millennials have a reputation for being lazy, which is True, like we do have that reputation. Would you say that personal investment is the counter to that? Is what would be the remedy to that? Or do you think that's not even true? I, I know that most generations have had this label. I just kind of love to hear your thoughts on that. No, I do think a lot of millennials are lazy. Like, <laughs> um, no, I, I I try to be as fair as possible. Like, And I would even say I maybe resonate more with older generations. Like, I feel like an old man in like a tattooed young guy's body. Like, I, I milk my... <laughs> my youth for everything I like, but I feel like an older person in my body. I really do. And I like things that older people like. And sometimes when I am around millennials for a long, long time, my own generation, I feel like lonely kind of because the conversations they have compared to the conversation older people have, they're just, it's like if I went to hang out with almost like around some middle school kids for an event and I'm just like, man, I can't believe that what they're talking about is so dumb to me. But I know I used to talk about that dumb stuff, too. And so it will mess you up if you get discipled and mentored. Because when I was like 19, I joined this Bible study of only older men. They were above like 45 years old, was the second youngest. And then me at 19. And I was in that group for like months. And I started picking up on like the main thing they talked about because they always laughed at my problems. Like, oh, my girlfriend or I can't find a job part time or my school's hard. It's always like they <laughs> laugh at it. They thought it was so dumb. And they they wouldn't laugh in a peace giving way. They'd be like, they'd pat me on my shoulder and be like, hey, you're, you're fine. We know it. It's not as big as you're making it. Um, but we've been there. We've been there. That's why we can tell you you're going to be fine. But I started paying attention. Okay, what is their problems then if mine are not a big deal at all? And I noticed they talked a lot about character and who they were becoming or who they had become and which they hadn't and were trying to undo. And they cared a lot about uh, legacy and how they would be remembered and what they'd be remembered for. And they cared probably the most was about relationships, mostly with their family, just how they wanted to and close friends. If they had given a lot of their life to their work, then they talked a lot about how they were trying to restore their relationship with their kids or their, their, their wives. And so I started thinking like, what if I focused on that? I'm 19 years old. I'm like, what if I focused on character, legacy and relationships a lot now? So that I don't, if that's going to be so important, why not just forget about what um, I'm focusing on today? And I found that to be really helpful.
I'm coming at you in the middle of this episode because I have a special offer for you. This episode is brought to you by HoneyBook, and today they are our sponsor. I don't often take on sponsorships, but guys, I love HoneyBook. I love what they have allowed me to do with my business, and you know when I love something, I want to shout it from the rooftops. So I talk pretty often about finding ways of automating, streamlining, and designing your business so that you're not a slave to your work. Well, this has been the year of putting systems in place to delight and surprise the 60 plus clients I have the privilege of working with each and every month. Part of delighting my clients means not spending all of my time on the admin side of our work relationship. So I've really zipped up my business and I have HoneyBook to thank. They've helped me create a space where I can invoice clients with the option of recurring payments, track all our communications and manage our work together all in one place. Y'all, it's unreal. It's changed my life. They're professional, secure, and have customizable templates so that you can stay true to your brand and your voice. Being a seven on the Enneagram means that systems aren't necessarily my cup of tea, but I also want efficiency and excellence. HoneyBook made it so easy, y'all. It's amazing what it's done for my business. And like I said, when I have a software that I love, I like to shout it from the rooftop. So guys, I have a little code for you, share.honeybook.com slash Kelsey Chapman. Write that down. It will also be linked up in the show notes and over on the blog post for this podcast episode on my website. Guys, I'm a big fan and that code gives you 50% off for your first year. I don't know about you guys, but CRMs can be a little bit pricey. And so that 50% off is really going to make your client management ballin' and affordable this year. I'm so excited. Check it out. Share.honeybook.com slash Kelsey Chapman for 50% off your entire first year. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, I remember in Estes Park just thinking, wow, like these are a lot of the same values. I, you know, had, you know, some family stuff growing up that led me to seek out women mentors. And some of them are my best friends. Like, one yeah. of, I love, like, Anne is, you know, 48 and she's one of the closest people in my life and has invested so much. And Catherine's probably 56, you know, and I, yeah. I just, the, the power of the next generation investing in us and sharing up, sharing about their missteps in hopes that we can avoid them and empowering us to go further than they even went. And then, then it's our turn to empower, you know, people 10, 20 years behind us to do the same. And so, I, I mean, I just think it's so powerful. So what would be your hope for church leaders to take away from reading the passion generation or just leaders in the marketplace in general of how to deal with millennials and what would be valuable for them to spend their time focusing on? Because I think, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, this is what our label has been and we're so much more than that. And it'll take discipleship to do that. But what do you think is the practical takeaways of changing, changing the tides of where this generation ends up? There's been so many prayers. Like I've never shared this before because it's, it's pretty new, but I, I've made the book kind of my 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 background on my phone, just so like try to make a commitment every time I see it. Which is, I mean, they say we pick up our phone like 50 times a day, which I think is pretty accurate. That I would quickly say a quick prayer, and not the same as the last one for it, and it's not for the book, but for the people that would read it. 
And so it's crazy cool to see the different stories that, I don't know, it's like you feel like God gave you creativity for the mom that's really struggling with their son or daughter who's walked away from the faith, um, but they don't live in their home anymore. So it's so hard for her to know how to influence without nagging or the boss that's like on the verge of firing this like very passionate young person. So I want to like restore the relationship between them because maybe the young person's passionate and needs to to be a little more respectful and patient with wanting change, but could be like incredibly grifted. Like Peter was, who's like crazy passionate, loose cannon, but after a while becomes like very focused and great leader. I think I pray a lot for young people that are trying to figure out how to pursue their, like their career. Cause there are a lot of young people that are, I think neglecting the necessary job today because they want like the all-star job like right now. And so they neglect the, the jobs they need to have to get there. I think probably the most is for pastors that are trying to reach millennials, parents that are trying to raise millennials, and <laughs> this uh, uh, I would say employers that are trying to kind of retain millennials um, just because that tends to be the number one frustration with young adults is just how much they job hop um, around the trajectory to have 14 jobs by the time we're 40 years old. Wow. And so not by the time we die, just by 40. And, and so it's really disrupting. Uh, the marketplace a lot, like billions lost in hiring, firing, all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, my, my heart really is uh, that it would be a bridge between these generations. I, I really don't like the division because I think that the enemy wins whenever we are divided. And uh, I think that the generations before us have so much wisdom. And you already said it, we could learn from them. Um, I feel like our generation has crazy amounts of knowledge and unbelievable, unparalleled access to knowledge than any generation before us. But we don't have wisdom. Like Charles Spurgeon said, wisdom is knowledge used rightly. I think we have access to a lot of information, but wisdom is like when you've you've tried the information you know and you failed and you figure out this is the wise thing to do. Yeah. And I think that you can only learn that through experience. Therefore, you can only learn that from the generations before who have been there and done that. And so that's what I think is crucial is those guys in a way from that Bible study, I saw wisdom or I got wisdom from them because I, I learned vicariously through their failures. Like, yeah. I remember saying this to them and they, it made them laugh so much because I was like, hey, you guys know that quote that says, oh, you learn from your mistakes or you learn from your failures. Uh-huh. And I said, but did you notice it never said you had to learn from your own mistakes? I said, I've been using all this time to learn from y'all fools' mistakes. And they just sort of like laughing. And they're like, good. I wish I would have done the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just so cool to, to recognize the power of investing in one another. And again, right now, you know, as millennials, it's kind of our turn to, to be able to learn from those ahead of us. But one day it's going to be the next generation's turn to learn from us. So I think it's, it's a conversation for all generations, how we can really empower one another and link arms because you're right. We can't do this divided. So as a millennial, you had your own journeys with a little tough love from your dad, it sounds like, and had kind of an experience after college where you couldn't come back home. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so college has always been kind of a sticky situation for me just because basically I just, I, I didn't enjoy college that much. The learning process, I felt like, I felt like a lot of it was busy work, but it wasn't actually like preparing me for real life. And 
I was doing ministry at the time that me and a friend had helped start. And that was teaching me so much more, I felt like, for me and my story than college was. And so basically, I had dropped out without really talking to my parents about it. I just decided to drop out. And so when I came home, because I couldn't live at the college anymore, I tried to move in with my parents. And my mom was cool with it. But then when my dad got home and found out I was there, he like put my stuff outside. He's like, Grant, you can't drop out of college and just make a flippant decision like that and then think you're just going to now live here. And so... At first, I was really frustrated with them. And then I started becoming like kind of sad or felt betrayed because I had to like go find a place to live and find a job and do a lot of things that at the time I really was like, man, I can't believe you wouldn't let me stay here for a night or two or just even like a one month so I can get back on my feet. But the good thing now looking back on it is with him doing what he did, it really forced me to consider the decisions that I had made. And it really forced me to consider the next decisions that I would make on what kind of job would I take. Because I didn't have the luxury of saying, if I was living at home and kind of chilling, I think if I didn't find a job I really loved, wait for another one or wait for something else to come along. But with no house and no money, I was like, I just needed whatever job I can get today. And so I I also think I would have just, I don't know if I would have been as driven to find a job and driven to just try to get, it really matured me. I mean, that season of my life was one of, at that time, hardest seasons of my life. And it really made me rely on the Lord. Um, I remember uh, memorizing Psalm, like different Psalms in the Bible and just seeing like, Hey, this is God's plan or God has me. Even if I don't know what he's doing, like he'll establish my next step. Um, And I, I now think back to one of the most maturing seasons of my life. And it was that season And so why I talk about that in the book is I feel like right now there's a little bit over 30 million young people living with their parents that are millennials that are not like high school age. 30 million? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of young people (laughs) that live with their parents. And and, um, with that, though, I'm not saying a parent should never let someone live with them, their kid. But what I am saying is there seem... We, as a generation, me and you, Kelsey, we get like made fun of all the time for participation trophies. And I've yeah. always thought, how do we get made fun of for something our parents gave us? It's not like when we were six years old, we came up with a small little six-year-old committee and said, this is what we demand of you guys. We just received whatever you gave us. We want to know that was different than generations in the past and get participation trophies. So I feel like participation trophies are actually a maybe a symbol of a certain type of parenting posture because I think like our grandparents really took a more of a tough love. We kind of walked eight miles in the snow uphill to go to school type of lifestyle to now our parents. I think they're like, you know, I'm going to like help my kids and kind of a, they, they swung the pendulum to where it was so helpful that they would let 30 million young people live with them. And here's my point. I shared that I think that was one of the most intimate seasons I've ever had with God. It was also one of the hardest seasons I've ever had in my life. And if you really think for yourself, like, I found that most people, if you ask them, what are the top five seasons of your life where you just felt so close to the Lord? Um, You you felt like you you were in the Word regularly. You were praying. um, you, You just felt like He was speaking to you and guiding you. A lot of times the seasons that we would list are not technically circumstantially our best seasons are actually usually yeah. difficult circumstances. And so what I say in the book is kind of like, 
if we save our kids from the hardest circumstances they encounter, we may be also saving them from the circumstances that will lead them to Christ Yeah, um, into relying on the Lord. And so when they read the verse that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for God is with me. Instead, they'll read it. And it says his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Instead, they'll read it thinking, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for mom is with me in her purse and her wallet. They help me and comfort me. And so (laughs) basically they don't need to ever meet Jesus or rely on Jesus because mom's going to swoop in and help them or dad. I don't think we all, I don't think dad gets off the hook. He he shows that in a different way. And so anyway, I kind of talk about how maybe millennials actually need a little bit. Maybe we need more tough love, Um, but it is tough love. It's not just being tough because I do think sometimes it can go too far where it's like, it's just criticism and cynicism. It's not, hey, I'm on your team, but I'm not going to do the work for you. And so my hope is that we move away from kind of being a cynical person to being more of a coach where it's like, I can't do the work for you, but I can coach you just like someone on the team. I'm going to train you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to guide you. When you lose, I feel like I lose, but you have to do the work. I'm not on the field playing. You are. Yeah, that's good. So what is your hope? You know, as this book makes its way into the world, as this message makes its way into the world, what's your hope for the people who read it, for the impact that it will leave? Because I think it's pretty cool, and I'm really excited for it to to get out in front of more people. Uh, Probably my number one hope is that uh, discipleship is normalized in the church. Half of the book is on how to practically disciple millennials, like Mm -hmm. literally how more of a step-by-step process of what could discipleship look like. And so I joke to some people that it's a book on millennials, but it's actually a Trojan horse just to, on the Great Commission. One of the slogans I say is, we could just make the commission great again. Like <laughs> Donald Trump says, make America great again. If the church could just make the commission great again, I think millennials would love the church. And I think they'd love the cause of the church. Um, but I think that we focus so much on attendance and building an audience instead of focusing on making disciples and building an army. And so I think a lot of nonprofits are the ones that are focusing on the causes and the needs. And so that's why you see a lot of young people leaving church, but not um, there, but they're joining nonprofits and they're joining causes and they're starting entrepreneurial endeavors. And anyway, I just think, I think that discipleship, there's a reason why Jesus would choose it as his last words to us as his people. And uh, what I've found is most people don't disciple anyone. They impact people. They're intentional with people. They love people, but they they don't make they don't disciple anyone like an exclusive relationship of hey you're my guy or you're my girl, and I want to I want to pour into you and I make you a fisher of men. Um, and for me, when you get that and receive that, you mature because you you have to ask yourself if you're willing to live up to the to the responsibilities that that requires. If you want to live up to those standards, you have to count the cost. Um, and, and I think that that would really transform the church. If, I mean, discipleship should be the one thing that I wish, hopefully my hope, I guess, and one more thing is my hope is that in the next 15, 20 years, it would be pretty normal for uh, our generation, because we'll be older by then, to have like the Z generation come with us to certain things with our yeah. family, for the Z generation to come with us to certain things in our church or even in our personal life that it's like there may still be tension between generations, but at least Christians there that we would be known just like, um, 
kind of like Mormons. They're known to wear that certain outfit and go door to door. Like they're known for that. Like they do it. Like they are. It's a signature thing that we know them for. I, I mean, that's do their thing. But for us as Christians, I, I would want us to be known for like, man, I don't always agree with everything they do, but they are good at pouring into the next generation yeah. and loving them and caring for them and investing in them um, and passing the baton well. And, and I don't think we're that different when it comes to generational unity than the world right now. But I, I, I really hope that that will change. Man, I'm with you. I love what you're doing. I'm so excited. Where can people find you, find your book, find all the things? Yeah, so my website is just my name grantskeldon.com my instagram and twitter is my name just grant skeldon i've never met another i've never met another skeldon so it helps with all oh, that wow. but it's s-k-e-l-d-o-n so grant skeldon and then my ministry is initiativenetwork.org and the, the book is it's on amazon for pre-order it's also on my website at grantskeldon.com and so yeah that's that's kind of where everything could be found super pumped and for our listeners why is it important to re- pre-order it's important to pre-order because i mean it especially in the first week or two, it definitely puts it on the map for other people. One of my biggest hopes, Kelsey, also is that like the book would become popular so that other people that are just so desperate to reach millennials would then like see so much about Christ because it's a problem that impacts the whole world. But you couldn't read my book without seeing how important Christ is and how his way works. And he just made disciples. And so I guess it's really important to kind of put it out there for everyone to see. Yeah. And it's important because the, the stores know to stock your book. And yeah, so yeah. I'm excited. It's not about you making a ton of sales. It's about getting this message into more hands. So totally. thank totally. you for your work and bringing this message to the world and for your, for your ability to facilitate and connect. I am honored to know you. So I'm glad you joined me today, Grant. Yes, thank you for having me. Hey, don't go yet. I would love it if you go over to iTunes right now and leave a review. I love hearing your feedback and it really makes a difference in getting the Radiant Podcast name out there. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe and then share this episode on Facebook or Instagram or wherever your social media platform is of choice. Lastly, I'd love to keep up with each other. Come find me on Instagram at Kels Chapman and let's get to know each other. Cozy up for the holidays with 60% off everything at Banana Republic Factory, including soft sweaters, comfy pajamas, must-have gifts, and more from $9.99. Find your nearest store now, only at Banana Republic Factory. Get 50 through 70% off almost everything at Gap Factory and GapFactory.com. Plus, shop new doorbusters for the family, including outerwear, jeans, and our Gap Logo Crew Neck sweatshirt. Find it all at Gap Factory or GapFactory.com through December 14th. What you doing? Trying on glasses with Zenny's 3D Virtual Try-On. Wow, that's pretty cool. But those glasses kind of make you look like your Uncle Bob. Oh, not exactly the look I was going for. Um, okay, how about these clear glasses? Oh, or these round ones? Very on trend. I like both on you. You know, I also like these aviator sunglasses. Wait, are those the actual prices? I say get all of them. Seriously, why not, right? Oh, now I want new glasses. Zenny.com. Quality prescription glasses starting at 695